blacktails first because uh, they're the best here. Uh, yeah. Whitetails, mule deer, uh, coos deer. No, cow's deer. <laughs> We're going to go there, huh, Jim? What is up, everybody? Mark on the mic here, and boy, do we have a good one today. Going to talk a lot about my favorite subject, deer. And to help us do that, we have Mr. Jim Heffelfinger from Arizona Game and Fish. To do that, Jim is an expert on the subject. In fact, uh, Jim, when we were emailing back and forth trying to set this up, you were using... uh, uh, words like uh, taxonomic, and it was at that point I was like, "Oh, this is this is going to be good." So, uh, yeah, Jim. Number one, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you're going to be able to see in uh, behind Jim. He's got a deer skull, pretty cool. We got some other stuff. Also, a saber tooth tiger, which maybe we'll talk a little bit about that at some point, just because I find it um, incredibly interesting. But before we get even too far deep in the weeds, Jim, uh, like I said, thanks for joining us. And yeah, man, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in deer, uh, your career, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, you bet. I'm glad to be here and happy to talk about deer anytime. I've been struggling with a scratchy throat, but all that's given me is is a really cool radio voice, so I'm pretty excited about that. It sounds, you probably it sounds, wouldn't even notice. It sounds great from <laughs> our end. So. <laughs> it doesn't normally sound that good, so I'm pretty excited about that. I finally got a <laughs> podcast voice for me. So I, um, I, I've been with Arizona Game to Fish for 31 years, and and the first 23 years as a regional biologist dealing with mostly hunted species, the surveys, and and also the prescribing of hunts appropriate, sustainable um, deer tags. So I was in management for for more than two decades. In the last eight years, I switched to the same agency, Arizona Game and Fish, but wildlife science coordinator. So it's my job to be kind of a science advisor and and make sure that we've got a good scientific foundation beneath the the decisions we make and the policies we make. And so I've always been very, very science oriented and love to dig into the science and the scientific literature and have a knack for taking that that um, technical science stuff and, and explaining it in a way that normal people can can understand. Um, and so I'm, I'm really enjoying my job. 31 years here. I grew up in Wisconsin, not far from where you're sitting right now, probably went to high school in Horicon in Dodge County. And Horicon is at the southern end of the Horicon National Wildlife Refuge, the Horicon Marsh, which is the largest freshwater marsh in North America. And so I came up from a suburb of Chicago uh, after seventh grade. My dad bought a little hardware store in a small town in Wisconsin in Horicon and and started uh, meeting friends of mine who grew up hunting, which I did not. I grew up in, in, in a suburb. So I started going out with them. I was astounded that their parents in eighth grade let them just walk around the woods with a shotgun. That was just so surprising for me. So that was kind of my introduction to the whole um, the whole hunting world. And, and I loved it. And spending time out in the marsh and spending time out in the associated woods really got me interested in nature uh, just immediately. And so I started thinking after um, high school there, started thinking, is there something I can do that that puts me out in nature, at least has me working with wildlife and, and conservation? That was pretty interesting. And so then I went to University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, which uh, at the time and probably still is the largest undergraduate wildlife school in the country, just a giant natural resources college there. And um, and got a bachelor's degree in in um, in wildlife management there, and and then a master's degree in in South Texas, working on coyote predation on trophy whitetails in in South Texas, and and that's what really launched my my career in conservation. That's awesome. And then eventually our Wisconsin winners they just they pushed you they pushed you to Arizona. 
Yes. When I um, finished my, my bachelor's degree in Stevens Point, I started looking for graduate work someplace where I wouldn't have to shovel snow. And I was successful in getting into uh, South Texas. And I, I haven't shoveled snow since. We come back to Wisconsin uh, every year. My, my wife's family's still there. I still have family there and, and friends all around the Horcon and, and even the, uh, the Madison area. And so we come back once a year. In fact, when you first contacted me, I think I had just returned from Wisconsin back to back to Tucson. I know. I was super bummed. I was like, oh, we just missed you. But uh, I'm sure we'll wrap mm-hmm. this one up. And uh, like I said, deer and deer hunting, those are like two of my favorite things in the world. So the next time you're back in Wisconsin, we'll probably have to orchestrate yeah. a topic and uh, to chat about and have you out here for a visit because that'd, be, uh, that'd be super fun. So Yeah, definitely. Well, I've, my website that I've had for... 20, 25, probably at least 20 years is DeerNut.com. So that tells you a little bit about my interest. Yeah, DeerNut.com. You've written uh, some books, yes? Yeah, I wrote uh, Deer of the Southwest. I wrote a little aging guide on how to age um, wildlife by their teeth and horn rings and, and that sort of thing. I um, The Deer of the Southwest was my book that I wrote. I've been involved in over, I've written over 20 uh, book chapters. And so I've contributed to a lot of other books. And then most recently was the lead editor on uh, a huge book on ecology and management of blacktail and mule deer in North America. And so that's the Bible for people interested in blacktail and mule deer anywhere in North America, from Alaska to, to Mexico. That will be the Bible for, for decades to come. It got 23 chapters, 550 pages, 100 color photographs, and 82 experts that co-authored those chapters and so each chapter topic is written by the world's expert in that topic so i'm really excited about that that's going to be an awesome resource yeah that sounds super interesting i my home state uh uh is washington state so i actually grew up chasing blacktails in in western Uh washington so that's kind of that was the you you got blacktails in your heart i i tell you what man they're there i i love those darn things and uh they're you know, sneaky, reclusive. I like where they live. I like right. how I like how I like how you hunt them. I think I think that's everybody. However, you grew up hunting is kind of like what hunting is to you. I think. And uh, man, I just yeah, those things they they've captured my heart though. They're neat. Yeah, I've never lived in a blacktail area or managed blacktails, but for some reason I absolutely love them. I've hunted a Sitka blacktail on Prince of Wales Island twice, and they're just really interesting critters. Yeah, I was actually, uh, it was after we were setting this up, I was watching, I don't know if I was watching YouTube or one of the outdoor networks, but uh, it was you, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, Jim Heffelfinger up up on, uh, yeah, I think, you know, Southeast Alaska, you know, yeah. Sitka Blacktail, and I was like, oh, sweet, That's that. it was like, uh, it was cool to, to see you doing that, and now we got you here, so. Yeah, it wasn't as, as cool to watch it as it was to be there, that was fantastic, that was like, Lord of the Rings, walking around on a Lord of the Rings movie set. It's pretty amazing. It's, uh, yeah, that's a definitely a neat region. Uh, I think being from the Pacific Northwest, man, that's just like, that's as P&W as it gets, you know, and, and it's, yeah, it's neat up there. The hunting and the fishing and the landscape is is uh, pretty pretty special stuff for sure. So the uh, um, the topic today, obviously, everybody, is deer-related, but Jim, I reached out because I'd seen, um, you know, like this this thirty one species North American deer slam, right? And I was like, and some of them they're very clear to me. I'm like, oh yeah, uh, you know, uh, an axis deer is is different than a white tail deer. That makes that makes sense. But then there's some other, you know, borders regionality type things defined, and it's like, oh man, is is a uh, is a Wisconsin deer really different than an 
Illinois deer. I'm like, how far apart can these things be? And and uh, so we're you know trying to find a subject matter expert and. And we were actually uh, suggested or pointed your direction from uh, from uh, Kevin at the at the Wisconsin DNR. He was aware of you and and you know you're you know being a subject matter expert in the area. And I was like, man, we got to we got to call this guy and see what's going on here and kind of talk about you know. To me, like historically, like you know, a deer slam, if you will, or like the major subspecies is like you know five, right? And and we can get into which ones those are in a little bit, but um, yeah, there's there's some there's some extras here for sure. <laughs> some extras. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, as humans, we love to categorize things. It's just our nature, I think, especially when it comes to the wild. Um, in the early years, especially wild nature, it made us feel better if we could just categorize things. We have these categories of things and then it all kind of feels right in our brain because we can put things in bins and nature is really not that way. A lot of things operate on a continuum and we start putting them in bins and putting them in categories and you're always going to have problems at the boundaries of those, those categories. But not only do we like to put things in categories, but we're also, as humans, pretty goal-oriented. And, and once we have them in categories, then we want one of all of those. We want to collect all of those and, and trade them with our friends. So it's, a, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just, um, I think, human human nature to do that sort of thing. And so that extends to the hunting world, of course. When we see these animals, we're hunting these animals. We hunt a couple of different kinds of deer, and all of a sudden we start thinking, well, how many different kinds are there that we can um, that we could hunt for, for people that are interested in doing that? And there was a, uh, a mammologist in Arizona back in the 70s or 80s, Donald Hoffmeister, and he wrote a paper, and I love the title of his paper, and I've, I've used it in some of the things I do. He wrote a paper that was titled, The Kinds of Deer in Arizona. And he used the word kinds, which I thought was hilarious because it's not a scientific term, but it, it gets you away from all of the controversy of what's a species and what's a subspecies. There, he just talked about what kinds of deer we have in Arizona, and I've always thought that was hilarious, and I've used that a few times in, when I'm categorizing things. But the bottom line is you, you have to, when you think about these slams, you have to remember that this, this, these are not scientific categories. These are just categories that, that people put together, and there's all kinds of slams. The the um, wild sheep slam is one of the most famous and long running where there's there's four different kinds of sheep. There, there's um, dull sheep, there's stone sheep, desert bighorn and Rocky Mountain bighorn. And for, for a long time, people have have you know wanted to collect those four and get what they call the grand slam in the, um, the sheep world. I remember my brother um, had a job in Wausau and I was up there visiting him. We went to see his boss and we went to his boss's office and his boss had some mounted heads around and his boss had the Rocky Mountain, the stone and the doll up on the wall. And I had just met the guy and I walked in and I looked at the wall and I said, where's your desert? And his shoulders slumped down like, <laughs> oh, you, you caught me. I don't have my desert yet. So, you know, that's an indication how important to some people that those slams are. Turkey Federation has several slams, North American only for different kinds of turkeys and then uh, some international flavors. The SEI has had some different deer slams. It started out with three, and now they have like 13 different categories. Um, QDMI, QDMA uh, put together a, a deer slam a, a while ago. You know, Boone and Crockett has its categories. Pope and Young has the same categories. So there's all kinds of different categories and slams that people have put together that made sense to them. And they're all different, and they're all just based on categories that people just wanted to put deer in for for whatever reason some of them have different categories that really aren't any different 
and then some of them they're they're lacking some animals that probably could be peeled out of different but the important thing is categories that people put together for a slam are not necessarily related sometimes not at all to the scientific evidence of what really is different from one thing to the next and so you just have to keep those two things separate you can't try to make someone slam that they came up with fit the science because it doesn't it's not based on science it's just based on categories that someone came up with and so you, i don't in my mind i don't try to make those things mesh and say and criticize a slam because these two animals are not really scientifically supported genetically or or physically to be different than the other one i don't care you know people can make whatever categories they want and in fact i wrote an article once on deer slams where i listed a lot of different slams that people had categories that people had come up with and then came up with the heffel slam which was kind of a joke but it was taking the categories and saying okay if we're going to have some hunting categories here's some groupings that are an improvement they're better supported by science they're not you know they're not perfect they're not 100 percent. people could crit criticize and i didn't really and nobody really paid any attention to that article. I don't think anybody ever read it. And I didn't expect anybody to pick it up and, and start trying to get the helpful slam. But it was my point to say, you know, if you look at physical characteristics and some genetic information that we have about differences and just kind of geographically, whether they're isolated, here's some categories. And in that case, it was white-tailed deer only. Here's some categories that you could use. Well, just so you know, my new hunting goal in life is actually to get the Heffel Slam, so I'll be, I'll be looking that up. But um, All right. I, I do You'll like... be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like how... I do like how you talked about that, though, because it's not like... Um, the cool thing about, you know, a slam, like, you know, a whitetail slam or, or otherwise, is... Um, it, it can it can take you to different places, right? Like mm -hmm. I think humans, yeah. like you said, we like to bucket things. We can be goal oriented, and it kind of it might give you like a north star to like take you to different places. So like, oh, maybe I've hunted whitetails in Wisconsin my whole life, and I love hunting whitetails. But you know what? Gosh darn, uh, you know, I, I, there's this slam out there, and so that's going to take me to Montana. You know, I'm going right. to I'm going to make that part of my goal, and I'm going to get to see a different part of the state, hunt deer in a different environment. Um, and, uh, so I, I, th I think that's a really neat way to look at it, not to criticize because it might not be, you know, necessarily scientific based, but, um, and that's the way I look at it. Like they're, you know, they're just categories someone came up with, um, to hunt some different areas. And it's more than just, um, making, being interesting for people. Cause I can go to this place and that place. It has some real conservation benefit because if you designate like mule deer in the Baja Peninsula of Mexico, Genetically, physically, it's, it's not any different. Um, and in fact, the, the 31 deer slam actually calls them blacktails, which they're not. They're mule deer in the, in the Baja Peninsula. But they're no different than other desert mule deer in the main part of Mexico or even Arizona. Physically, genetically, there really isn't any difference. But if you carve out that category and say Baja mule deer, and people say, hey, I want to get a deer from, from Baja, Mexico, that brings hunters to that area it brings conservation dollars to that area, hopefully, depending on who's getting the dollars and what they're used for. In other countries, it's not set up um, as well as, as in the USA, where we've got these systems that the money goes into conservation. But in a lot of times, that money does go to local conservation. Because if a, a landowner has mule deer on his ranch on the Baja Peninsula in Mexico, and people, American hunters, will come and pay 
$30,000 to kill one of these big mule deer, he's going to start emphasizing mule deer conservation rather than overgrazing the snot out of that rangeland with cattle. So he's going to emphasize deer habitat and improving deer habitat, maybe putting waters up. So all of a sudden you've got a positive conservation benefit to mule deer in Baja, and you've got money coming in that could be used for some local law enforcement, even if it's a rancher hiring someone to keep them off the ranch so, so nobody comes and poaches the, the big deer. Maybe some, some supplemental um, feeding or you know whatever the rancher wants to do. All of a sudden you've got conservation attention being applied to that area, money coming in, which is really good for deer in, in those areas. And so there's these categories can have a real positive conservation benefit, bringing people and their dollars to these areas and fostering an interest in conservation of those animals, even if mule deer in the Baja Peninsula aren't any different than mule deer anyplace else in the Southwest. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've thought of, um, you know, conservation in that way, you know, both domestically and internationally a lot, but, I, but I'm not, I hadn't really thought about it that way in relation to like, you know, a, a, a slam like this, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're putting, you're placing a, a value on the deer in areas where they otherwise may not have, uh, that and yeah, a strong, a strong ripple effect from there, you know, for the deer, for habitat, for other species that benefit from that habitat. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. What, um, so what, okay. I'm going to tell you the subspecies of deer as I know them. And then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Okay. <laughs> are we talking about white tails or are we talking about mule deer? I'm going to talk about like the five. Okay. I'm um, deer. Okay. The fi- so, uh, yeah, I see where you're going. I'll say black tails first, uh, cause they're the best here. Uh, yeah. white tails, mule deer, uh, coos deer. No, cows deer. <laughs> we're going to go there, huh, Jim? That's, that's, oh, so that's we're where we're taking how much time you got, buddy. <laughs> no. you, can, you can call them coos deer if you want. I, if people are interested in this whole, you know, 90% of the people call them coos deer. Um, there's just a couple of geeky people like me that call them cows deer because that's the correct pronunciation. They're named after Elliot Cows, a early army surgeon, and they're named after him. So they're, they're, they should be pronounced cows deer. And so it's a, it's a, a big argument in a, a lot of the whitetail world about coos or cows. And I don't care how people call how people uh, pronounce it. Uh, I just don't like when people start arguing that it's not cows because it is. And if anybody's interested in the long form story of that, I wrote an article that's posted on my deernut.com um, that goes into detail. And the bottom line is Elliot Cows um, in a publication in 1882 has a little footnote where he describes how he pronounces his last name because there's some other subspecies that are named after him. And it, he, he writes C-O-W-Z, cows. Okay. So that's the way it's, so I, for example, I have some, um, some, where is this? Some stickers that I've made. Okay. With Elliot on there. Nice. Which are the deer, not the name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so continue to call them coos. That's fine. But, um, Yes, you've got mule deer, you've got white tail, you've got black tails, and then you've got coos, coos cows. Coos cows. And, yep. and, and then the, the fifth one is just the other black tail. So there's a Sitka. The Sitka black tails. Okay. Yep, and those two categories. And the, the two, if you start with the black tail categories, the Sitka and the Colombian, they, they look different. And I've been involved in a lot of genetic analysis in different kinds of genetics, mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA. And they separate out as separate, um, no matter what DNA you look at. There's, but there's overlap. There's no hard line 
um, between the Sitka blacktail in the north and the Columbian blacktail in the south. About mid-British Columbia, they transition. And when we sampled, I collected, I, or I had, I had people help collect um, 1,800 samples throughout North America from Mexico to Alaska to look at genetic differences between mule deer and blacktail deer. And we didn't sample, we need to sample more intensively in central British Columbia to see how sharp that line is between the two because the sampling in there is kind of sparse. Um, but there's no doubt when you get up there, you, you get those, those islands off of Southeast Alaska and Northern British Columbia, and you've got this smaller, very different looking Sitka blacktail um, with a double bib, double white bib, and then you get into Colombian blacktail, and there are some Colombian blacktails with the, the double bib for sure, but it's less common in Colombian. So you've got these physical differences. Colombian blacktails are bigger. You've got these physical differences. You've got these genetic differences. Um, there's some ecological differences where Colombian blacktail, they live in the coastal rainforest, but in the southern part of the range, the blacktails in Northern California come into like an oak woodland kind of habitat. Whereas the Sitka blacktails are really coastal, Southeast Alaska, British Columbia islands living on those thick, thick rainforest uh, islands. So there's good genetic and physical differences between the two blacktail subspecies. And then between blacktails and all mule deer, there's some pretty stark differences in the mitochondrial DNA. There's, there's the, when you look at the mitochondrial DNA is a type of DNA that's, that's inherited from the mother down the maternal line. And if you look at the mitochondrial DNA, both blacktails are different from all mule deer by like 7%. And that 7% is a level that a lot of species differ, not just subspecies. Oh, wow. Okay. They differ a lot of species. So some people, some mammologists have, have said they should be different species, blacktails and mule deer. I don't subscribe to that. And I think most people don't because the mitochondrial DNA is really different. But when you look at the other kind of DNA that they get half from each parent, the nuclear DNA, they're just in there with other subspecies of mule deer. The nuclear DNA shows um, that they're really closely related, more like a subspecies, in my opinion. Just the mitochondrial DNA, something happened that, that really made them different. And we think it was during one of the ice ages, blacktails being isolated along the Pacific coast um, for, for a long time, thousands and thousands of years. And then when the glaciers receded, blacktails and mule deer came back in contact with one another and they interbreed because they're, they're not that different that they can interbreed. So they interbreed, but they're definitely different and very different for all those reasons gotcha and so is it what um what would you say is like the what is the defining feature or percentage that does make something a different subspecies from from a yeah. different one no one has ever been able to answer that and i i don't think anybody will be able to answer that you know the 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 basic question is how different is different enough how different do things have to be before we call them subspecies? Because there's a lot of overlap. And there's a lot of subspecies that are called subspecies that no one's really even defined why they're different. They've just given them different names. Back in when we were uh, naming deer and, and subspecies and animals in general, people would collect one sample in, from one area and they'd say, we know we don't have a deer or a bear from this area yet, so I'm going to give it a subspecies name, and that subspecies lives here, and we're going to draw a range, just guessing, with a Crayola, draw a range where this animal lives, and then someone collects 100 miles away, they collect another bear, and they say, well, this thing 
um, looks bigger than that one over there. And so it's a different subspecies and they name it after their brother-in-law or whatever with a scientific name. So you have all these different subspecies and Miriam, who is a famous mammologist, um, who Miriam's turkey is named after. And, and he was a famous mammologist and he named 52, I think, different species, not subspecies, but species of brown bear um, in Alaska alone. And then later on, people came and realized these are just different individual specimens. There's not, there's no differences. But with deer, especially all of the subspecies we have, like in Mexico, people collected a specimen, put it in a museum, gave it a subspecies, said, here's where it lives. And then in order to dethrone that subspecies or to invalidate it or to show that it's no different than this one 100 miles away, you need a comprehensive analysis to measure deer, a good sample size of deer in those areas and a genetic analysis to show that they're the same. So once someone names something, we're stuck with it until someone does this huge expensive study to see if they're any different. And, and people have done some of those studies and with all the genetic work that I've done and looking at physical differences, when I wrote chapter one of that latest mule deer book um, with Emily Latch, a geneticist at University of Milwaukee that I've worked with for more than two decades, we wrote that chapter and we took 11 mule deer and black-tailed deer subspecies and we boiled them down to five that were defensible. And we explained in that chapter why some of those that we were losing, why they weren't supported by any genetics or any physical differences because of the, the variation. And our five black-tail mule deer subspecies were Sitka blacktail, Colombian blacktail, and then there's an island population of mule deer off of Baja on Cedros Island which has been separated from the mainland for 10,000 years. They're physically different. They're genetically different. So Cedros Island mule deer is a subspecies. There's a Tiburon Island mule deer that's off the coast of Sonora. Same thing, 10,000 year separation, physical and genetic differences. So they're a good subspecies. And then the fifth one is all other mule deer on the continent, all other mule deer in, in North America, desert mule deer, Rocky Mountain mule deer, California mule deer. There's no genetic and physical differences that hold up to define categories with, with boundary lines. So we dissolved all those into a continental mule deer and then two island mule deer and two blacktail. Gotcha, gotcha. So it sounds like that, you know, more extreme isolation is really what, you know, can have an impact on, you know, separating these, these critters genetically, yeah. yeah? That's the key. If you don't have isolation, if you have two populations intermixing genetically, you can't have differences, they're mixing. Yeah. Well, that would be so. I've always thought of like uh, I know we're not. I know this isn't a bears podcast, but I like uh, surprise. I like bears too. Um, but you know, you were talking about different. You know, brown bears. Um, so are Kodiak, are Kodiak brown bears, are they a are are they separate from say like you know a, a you know coastal brown bear like in I southeast think they Alaska? Are, but my website's not bearnut.com. I'm yeah. not positive, but I think the Kodiak. Are separated from the inland grizzlies, but I don't. I don't know. We can't go too far down that road, and we just run out of my expertise. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll I'll, I'll uh, do some digging on my end. I th- that's what happens with these podcasts is I get down all these rabbit holes, and I think about this, and I think about that, and I come up with more questions, and maybe. Another- well, that's a fun thing about podcasts is you can go down rabbit holes like that. So that so that's the mule deer and black-tailed deer um, story. The white-tailed deer story is way more complicated uh, just because they have a much broader distribution from Canada, the mid, kind of mid-Canada 
all the way down into northern South America. The northern South America has got whitetails and some different subspecies in Venezuela that have been designated. Central America has several several different subspecies um, that no one's ever studied. In fact, the um, there's a, a thing called CITES, and it's a um, kind of a governmental body that monitors the trade of, of endangered species uh, among countries. And on one of their lists is the Mayan white-tailed deer, Odicolius virginianus myensis. And I looked into that because that's not really one of the subspecies. And it turns out there's just no, I mean, if you Google it, you don't even get many hits on Google. Someone did, someone more recently took a specimen, put it in the, a museum, gave it a subspecies name, and then they petitioned this, this governmental body, CITES, to put it on the list so that they could track movements of this non non-existent whitetail subspecies. So this CITES is this it's a convention of international trade of endangered species. They have this whitetail subspecies on their list that they're supposed to be tracking, and there's just nobody even knows what it is. There's they've never been defined, and it's not even on a list of any whitetail subspecies. But you can get it on the list, and then you can't take it off until you show that it's not. Um, endangered. So this taxonomy can cause, and taxonomy is this classification of species and subspecies. This taxonomy can cause just a lot of problems, and some of them legal problems. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. It seems um, relatively easy to slap a label on something, very difficult to take it off. Yes, yeah, it is. So there's 38 whitetail subspecies that are on the books. There's a lot more that have been defined, but there's 38 that people have for the last five decades have just continued. Every time someone writes a book about deer subspecies, they list those 38. And there's 30 of them in North America and, and eight of them in, in Mexico and Central America. So they just take that list of 38 and they just continue it. So I was asked to write uh, a chapter for whitetail book about a decade ago. In fact, it's the, if anybody's interested in whitetail subspecies and whitetail in general, um, David Hewitt was the editor of that, and it's kind of like the pair to our Mueller book. Got chapters written by all the experts, and and um, it's it's really the Bible right now for for white-tailed deer. And, that's and I wrote the, that book's the one. biology and management of white-tailed deer. Yep. Okay. Yep. And uh, by David David Hewitt is the editor with like our book, a whole bunch of different authors. So I wrote chapter one on subspecies, and they asked me to write that, and I said I'll write chapter one on subspecies and distribution. But I'm not going to list those 38 species. I'm, I'm not going to just go through and pretend like they're real because they're not real. And so what I did instead, instead of having a paragraph for each one of those 38 subspecies, I just started talking about, started in the Pacific Northwest and started talking about whitetails up in the Pacific Northwest and what they looked like without drawing any lines or categories and just coming down and saying um, in like the Rocky Mountain states, a little bit about whitetails there. And then these Southwestern whitetails and where they live and what their characteristics are, how they differ. We've got some genetic differences. We've, we, I helped with Boone and Crockett funding it and working with some geneticists. I helped develop a, a genetic test to diagnose whether a deer is a cow's whitetail or not. Because Boone and Crockett has cow's whitetail and then they have all other whitetail. So it was Pope and Young. So they needed a test when someone came up with a giant whitetail and said they killed it in Arizona. They needed a, a genetic test to see if it was. And we developed that. And, and Boone and Crockett uses that to test kind of unknown or questionable questionable deer. So there's some genetic differences between cows, white-tailed deer. So I talked about genetic differences when they were there. And then I talked about deer in the southeastern United States in general. 
and then talked about some of the northeastern um, whitetails and key deer and, and the Florida Keys and things like that. But I talked about it. I just talked about the geographic variation in whitetail around um, North America and in South America, some of the differences in South America without trying to define where they were and, and what labels they were. And I did reproduce in there a table of those 38 subspecies could see people could see, but with a lot of discussion by me about how these really aren't valid. They're just a list of names that people came up with. Interesting. Uh, you're talking about, uh, Cow's whitetail. For the sake of this conversation, Jim, cow's whitetail. Uh, <laughs> I love it when people then squirm and they don't know what they want to call it. Um, I don't really care. I'm on a lot of podcasts where it's coos, coos, coos. Um, it sounds like that's one where it's like people generally agree. So what 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 is? I mean, like when I look at one, I'm like, okay, that's different. It's you know much more petite than say a, a whitetail we'd see here in Wisconsin. But like. What is different about them? Yeah, you, and that's a good question. We talked about before how things kind of have to be separated because if they're interchanging, they're just going to blend together. And so the cow's whitetail really is is in the southwest. If you look at their distribution throughout Arizona, there's no whitetails west of them. And then when you get up to about central Arizona and Flagstaff, they stop and there's no whitetails north of them. And then in the northwestern part, there's no whitetails. It goes into New Mexico, but there's a gap in, in the northeastern kind of distribution of cow's whitetail. And, and so there's really three sides where they're not really connected. They're just connected through as you go kind of east through West Texas and then down into Mexico. They just blend into smaller whitetails in Mexico. You can't put a southern distribution on cow's whitetail because it just goes into these other Mexican subspecies. And they're all small. They're smaller ones yet down there in central Mexico. Um, but they do have like almost three sides. They've got no other whitetail. And so in that, that disjunct southwestern United States, um, there used to be whitetails like 10,000 years ago, close of the Pleistocene. There was more shrubland and forest that was more evenly coated through all the mountains. And then with the drawing after the Pleistocene, things started getting drier and, and shrublands turned to grasslands and forests turned to shrublands. And so a lot of those shrubs and forests disappeared in the lower areas as things turned to desert and things turned to grassland. And when they did that, it isolated these kind of forested shrublands on these higher mountains. And the whitetails that were there then were kind of isolated on these higher mountains. So it was really the change in the climate after the Pleistocene that isolated whitetails into a more disjunct, fragmented distribution on these higher mountain ranges in the Southwest. And that helped isolate, including the Sierra Madre, which is huge down into Mexico, giant mountain range that goes down the middle of Mexico. So that's kind of the homeland of the cow's whitetail with these little island, mountain islands. And so that it was that isolation that, that allowed them to get smaller and smaller in a less productive environment like the desert Southwest, where we don't have just tons of rainfall and tons of green things to eat. Um, and they've got to make a living on less food, it's more efficient and it's better to be a smaller animal because you don't have much to feed. You don't want to be a 300-pound Saskatchewan whitetail in Arizona trying to feed that body. So evolution trims animals in the southwest smaller and smaller, and that, that's part of the reason we've got this smaller whitetail. So it's that isolation that really created a very different genetically and physically, a very different. In fact, so here's a... Here's a Texas, a South Texas whitetail that got caught in the fence. Um, 
on a ranch I managed in South Texas, and the coyotes ran it into a fence and um, and chewed the back end out. And so that's a pretty good mature whitetail. Oh yeah. Here's a really good mature cow's whitetail. Oh, that's a good one. And so this is a good. This is a really good cow's whitetail. Probably at least four years old. And you know you can see this. Yeah, it's crazy. dwarf. So there's there's no doubt there's these physical differences, and you can see this was also a deer that my son shot in South Texas. You can see there's huge physical differences between animals that are fairly close in age. This one's a little bit older, fairly close in age, um, but not that different to account for such a huge difference in size. So these little cows, whitetail, just have this little. Some people call it like a racetrack. Their their main beams are a nice little tight oval together. That is a really good, that's a really good whitetail, cow's whitetail. Um, and so we've got these, these differences that have been shaped by their environment to make them smaller animals to be more efficient in the Southwest. Um, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And I'm glad, I'm glad you, you got there because I was going to ask him like, you know, well, why, what's the why behind their petite nature? So that definitely explains it really well. You know, essentially I was, I was going to ask you this too, you know, it's all, you, you hear the, the, the cows coos argument. And then when I, when I've hung out with people that live in Arizona though, they're just like, Oh, you have a white tail tag, you know? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> it, 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 that would be an easier default to call them white tails. And, and I do sometimes, um, but that's an, that's an easy way out. White tails. Cause we've just got one kind of white tail. We've got white tails. So you can go that route. It makes it easier. Um, but I, I always find that funny cause you know, it's, it's always a topic of conversation, fun at parties and yeah, the people I've, I've hung out with, they're like, Oh yeah. Oh, do you have, do you have a white tail tag or a mule deer or a mule deer tag? You know, like, like you said, but there's really, there's only going to be one if you're, if you're talking about it within the context of Arizona, like, you know, yep. you don't... when you get in New Mexico, Eastern New Mexico has some larger whitetails on the east. They call Sandhill whitetails. And that's where they start getting into the bigger like Texas whitetail because they're right up against the Texas panhandle over there. OK, so that's where it splits. Like the Rio Grande goes right down the middle of New Mexico and West New Mexico is cow's whitetail. Eastern New Mexico, when you get over towards the border of Texas, you get into a bigger whitetail. But there's a separation there where there's no whitetails in the whole middle strip of the state. And that's part of that separation that I that I talked about. That's why you don't get this natural blending of cows, whitetails and Texas whitetails across New Mexico. Gotcha. There's a gap in distribution. The other interesting thing about when you talk about like in the Southeast, um, the subspecies in the Southeast, Florida or the Gulf Coast, which are some of these on that 31 um, species list. And, and also the, you know, that list calls them species. And most of those I mean, they're not even subspecies, they're just categories. So to a biologist, species mean something. And those are, those are well-defined categories of animals that normally don't interbreed with, with other uh, animals at the species level. Subspecies, they can, inter they can interbreed with each other, but there's some geographic separation that keeps them separate if they're good subspecies. And so people talk about, well, what subspecies do you have in the Midwest or in um, the Southeast? And I wrote an article once on um, on the translocations of deer, of white-tailed deer, trying to restore deer populations a hundred years ago when they were when they were all shot out before we had any laws or any conservation at all. We you know we almost lost whitetails, and and the older people talk about 
when they were kids, if someone saw a deer track, you know, they'd run home and, and tell everybody they saw a deer track. So we went from that situation to restoring deer populations. Some of it was deer populations coming back with our protection and our conservation laws that we passed, buck only laws, you know, one per season and, and hunting seasons and all that. Some of them came back on their own. Some of them came back because we brought whitetails from areas where there were more of them and restored those populations by bringing them in. And people, when they talk about whitetail subspecies, they don't realize that um, like the state of Virginia was restocked by whitetails from 11 different states brought into Virginia. Um, and, and Mississippi got seven, there's records of 72 deer from Mexico being released in, in Mississippi. Um, and, and Texas deer were released in, in Florida in Louisiana and Georgia. Um, Wisconsin deer, you know, went to a ton of Wisconsin deer went to a ton of different, um, states. And so we've, and to the tune of hundreds and sometimes over a thousand deer brought in like from Wisconsin to Georgia and that sort of thing. And so now we talk about, well, um, what kind of subspecies do we have in Georgia? What kind of subspecies do we have in, in Wisconsin and that sort of thing? And it doesn't make a lot of sense anymore because we've messed things up so much. We've mixed things up so much. Yeah. There's definitely some, some artificial genetic influence there that otherwise, wouldn't have happened um that is curious yeah, there's, there's a case in georgia where there's a, a brain a brain abscess problem in a certain area in georgia and it keeps showing up where they get these big pussy brain abscesses in these deer and um they did some genetic work and tied deer in that area deer in that area came from the sand hill wildlife area in wisconsin and not only did deer in that part of Georgia come from the Sand Hill Wildlife Area in Wisconsin, but they have this brain abscess problem. And that's something that's been diagnosed in that Sand Hill Wildlife Area in Wisconsin. So there's a feeling that they, something about the genetics of those animals makes them more susceptible. And they had just brought that from Wisconsin to Georgia. And now that problem's in Georgia. And, and we're talking about 60, 70 years ago. Right, right. So there's, the, there's kind of a remnant or ghosts of these translocations and in the southeast you've got rut differences the difference in timing of, of rut which is genetically programmed and you still to this day even with the intermixing you still to this day have some real differences um, in rut timing in populations that are not that far apart and they think that's from the different genetic stocks that were brought in from completely different areas mexico texas wisconsin you throw them all in georgia and they they see that that um remnant of those different breeding timings interesting super interesting um yeah i mean yeah it's, that's that's uh, a lot to think about when you said like you said you're, you're defining you know subspecies and things like that and then you've got deer that were planted from one place to another do you know is there any has there been any research done on like let's say you you know you, you planted uh you know, uh, deer from Alberta into Florida at some point in time. How long does it take for those deer to kind of get smaller and smaller and smaller because that's genetically beneficial to survive in that uh -huh. environment? Uh-huh. They're going to retain some of their genetic things like, like that abscess thing and maybe rut timing. Physically, in about two or three generations, they can get smaller. <clears throat> and a lot of those translocations were done so long ago, they didn't have radio collars. They didn't really monitor it. They brought animals, they threw them out. And now 70 years later, we're trying to figure out what effect that might have genetically. So it, 
you know, it's hard. It's really hard to answer that question because we didn't really monitor that. But we have other experiments um, like Kevin Monteith for his um, master's degree, I believe it was, worked in South Dakota State. And in South Dakota, they've got um, whitetail in the eastern part of the state that are um, the more have access to more agriculture, bigger body size. Hope I don't have that flipped, but I might. So one half of the state in, in South Dakota, they have access to agriculture, big body size, measurably bigger body size. And then in, I think, a forested environment, less nutrition. And so they have smaller body size. And so they brought animals from those two areas, put them in pens and gave them the same diet and, and to see how long it would take for them to equalize or, or if they ever would. And they found that the not the next generation, but the second and third generations, that body size started to equalize with the other with the other animals. So it's very scientists call it very plastic, which just means it's very easily changed. So if you start giving them a smaller body size nutrition, it doesn't take very many generations for them to start taking advantage of that and getting a little bigger. There's some genetic constraints. If you take a cow's whitetail into a pen and feed it all the food it wants, it's not going to be a Saskatchewan whitetail in three generations. There's some genetic constraints. But if you have like eastern South Dakota, western South Dakota, and those differences in size are nutritional, you can bring them in and you can feed that smaller animal up. To And they measured Boone Crockett scores and body size in that case. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like, you know, physically the deer may look may may look very different, but it's more environmental based than genetic based. A lot of it is. Not all of it is. And and I don't know if I'd say more environmental, but environment has a, a big impact, um, especially on body size. Gotcha. Yeah, I I wonder if that's because I was gonna bring up so I shot a deer in a whitetail actually in Montana last year that was on just really on the cusp of, of mule deer habitat. You know, and it's uh, kind of grassland type stuff, no agriculture in the area. Um, and it was like, just like, I mean, uh, honestly, like I, it was like uh, very, uh, very cows, deer-esque. I got up to the thing and I'm like, holy mackerel, this is like, a, I think I would consider like, you know, I think it was actually a three-year-old deer, but very petite in body size. You know, the the antlers compared to like something we might see. And maybe it was a two-year-old deer. I didn't get it officially aged, but um, and I was talking with a buddy of mine who hunts out there a lot more than I do, and I was like, man, this deer was kind of deceiving to me. And he, he goes, oh yeah, you got to be careful. He's like, you know, if you if you're trying to you know get a big one, those those deer oftentimes they they're proportionally, you know, accurate, but you know. Uh, you know, can't a, judge a, proportions. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. is that is that would you maybe attribute like number one? Is there some truth to that? Like we are in like kind of the, like eastern Montana, and then would that be more environmental? I I don't have an answer to that because eastern Montana, especially in a lot of ag stuff, I, should not be stunted deer. Um, so I don't I don't know I don't know what's going on there. I know someone. Someone reported they saw a deer with really short, stubby legs, like a corgi, and they were asking me about it. And I said, "I said, I, did it have antlers? Was it even a deer?" You know, I was asking questions. It didn't make any sense to me. And then they sent me a picture they found on the internet of a deer that had like really stubby legs, and it looked like you know piebald deer, which is those deer that are partially white. They have like brown and white patches. Piebald deer have a whole bunch of skeletal abnormalities. They've got a bunch of other genetic problems that comes along with that. That color, and I've seen piebald deer that look kind of like corgis with short, stubby legs. This picture was a completely brown deer, but I suspect it had some kind of skeletal abnormality like that. Yeah, but as far as your smaller deer, I, 
I don't know in in Eggland. So it was it wasn't done. it wasn't Eggland oh, though. It was like okay. uh, it was very kind of like grass kind of like grassland oh, okay. and then went into like I would say like your classic mule deer habitat you know very arid yeah. type stuff so yeah still eastern Montana I, I don't know I wouldn't expect to see a smaller deer or, or have someone shrug it off as just you know sometimes there's smaller deer I'm not sure oh my gosh now Jim now you, now you have me question maybe maybe I shot the king of the one and a half year olds <laughs> yeah, maybe oh no maybe. what have I done <laughs> <laughs> oh man um golly this is all interesting stuff and I, I love thinking about it um we've been talking a lot about white-tailed deer and so you know some are on this list and and uh but I, I guess i have questions and maybe the answer is the same but i you know um we've talked about columbia black-tailed deer what about columbia white-tailed deer yeah columbia white-tailed deer they are we know we talk about that separation and they're they're separated from the other whitetails that are way up in the northeastern um part of that and so um columbian whitetail existed in two disjunct populations and one along the columbia river and um and one in in um around bend douglas county that's what i was trying to think of douglas county oregon and they're they really weren't they're not interchanging um lewis and clark first described that Columbia whitetail along the Columbia River when they reached the Columbia River. And they described it as just like the other whitetail, except the tail is half again as long. So another 50% longer. And <clears throat> there have been some people that have measured tails, but I, I wasn't able to get that information. I don't think it was ever published, but I'm really interested in some real metrics and whether those tails are any longer. And what sparked my interest, I would just write it off as a stupid comment by Lewis and Clark, but when you look at pictures of those whitetails, sometimes the tails look like they're longer to me. It's really interesting. So I'd like to have some some more data um, on that. But they're they're separate. They're certainly physically separate. Those two populations of Columbia whitetail are separate. The one in I think 2003, the Douglas County population was delisted. They're they're put on the endangered species list um, because they were isolated and small populations. Then in 2003, the Douglas County population was delisted and Oregon started hunting them. The one along the Columbia River is still listed. There's a National Wildlife Refuge that was established to help them out there. There's been at least seven different translocations of those deer up to other areas along the, the Columbia River. And so they're they're doing, um, I think they were delisted from, from endangered to threatened along the Columbia River, that second population. I just heard a talk last this summer um, at a mammologist meeting where um, a guy was arguing that that Douglas County population that's hunted should be a separate subspecies. And he had some little tiny genetic differences and it, it, his talk didn't make any sense. And I told him at the end of his talk, it didn't make any sense, but that was no big surprise because he and I had emailed back and forth. In fact, I reviewed the paper that he was trying to publish to call that a different subspecies and I recommended it be rejected by the journal and it was rejected by the journal and so I think now he's just sending it to different journals until he can try to find one that will be duped into taking it because it doesn't make any sense that this little population in Douglas County Oregon would be a whitetail um, subspecies but he's very preservationist oriented he's a professor and he's very pre preservation oriented and I almost suspect he doesn't like the fact that they're hunted and he thinks if he can get a different subspecies, then maybe he can get them relisted and then they can stop killing white-tailed deer in Douglas County. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little um, skeptical of people that are trying to do things like that. People will use 
taxonomy, this classification. They use taxonomy and they weaponize it to try to designate some little population, like wolves in Southeast Alaska, for example, designate them as different subspecies. And once they're a different subspecies, then we're gonna to petition to get that subspecies on the endangered species list um, and protect those wolves. So people are using these categories um, to protect animals from, from hunting in some cases. Yeah, like you said, it's 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 really unfortunate because these you know should be tools that are you know when used properly are like you know really important and critical. And then like you said, when when they get weaponized, it just kind of uh, undermines the whole system and and the greater purpose behind it, which is uh, I find quite unfortunate. Um, what about? Uh, have we have we missed anything as it pertains to like you know classifying things or what makes them truly different? It sounds like isolation is a key. Obviously, genetic differences and, and you know like we touched on on before. You know, I mean, some things are just different species. You know, as far as as far as that yeah, goes. Yeah, they're, they're very but, different. But really, all those differences have to come about from some kind of isolation, and they may not be isolated anymore. You know, in the Pacific Northwest that you're familiar with, black tails go up into the um, cascades and and mule deer on the east go up in the cascades. And then some are up there in the high elevation, and and then most of them go back down to their respective sides. But we did a genetic analysis in the blacktail mule deer interface along the Cascade Mountains and found uh, just a wide swath of hybridization between mule deer and blacktail deer. Have you ever heard of bench legs? What bench legs are? Yeah, yeah. yeah so some of the locals call those hybrids bench legs. Um, I think because they have supposedly have shorter legs, which they don't, but. Um, I saw a, a, an online forum once where they were asking whether you believe in bench legs or not, which is kind of a funny question because hybridization happens all along that mountain range. And so there are a lot of hybrids. I'm not sure what they're considering bench legs, but I think like 13% of the respondents said that they've seen a Bigfoot once. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a funny part of the survey. That is awesome. I tell you what, man, those those PN Dub woods, they're pretty thick. You know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, that's too that's too funny. Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about the about that thirty one species slam. And I mean it includes some animals that are not native to to North America, like the the deer and the axis deer. The deer in Maryland, there's a population that's hunted. Um axis deer in Texas and in um Hawaii. You see that a lot on social media. Um, that, that are hunted. So it's it's really, you know, it's not really a list of like North American species or subspecies. It's a just a group of, of different deal deer and it's it's um it's diced up, you know, into some pretty fine pieces. Yeah, I mean and and some to me like make clear sense and others are a little bit more of a a, a gray area like, you know, and, and some of them I'm not even you know, really familiar with um, outside of, you know, like a Carmen mountain white-tailed deer versus a Central American white-tailed deer. Um, are those, um, you know, is that just kind of like the same thing we've been talking about, just kind of somebody going in there and drawing a line a little bit? Yeah, and, and so most of those aren't really scientifically, taxonomically, or genetically or physically different, especially in Mexico. Um, but as we talked about, if you want to, if you want to draw lines on a map and say this category is in these states, and, and that um, slam, I have trouble calling it a species slam because they're not species, but that slam, thirty-one slam, 
um, that pretty much follows state lines to make it easy, like deer in these states and, and deer in those states. So, so for example, like Midwestern whitetail, I thought was odd that it was in like Arkansas and Missouri, but Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana is like Northeastern whitetail. Right. I mean, I would have, I would have thought Wisconsin would be a Midwestern whitetail. I mean, I think, I mean, you look at all the t-shirts around here, they say things like Midwest is best. And (laughs) (laughs) I think people from here, they think they're from the Midwest. So yeah. If you were Daniel Boone, then, then Wisconsin was like the West. There you, there you these go. These days we consider it the Midwest. And I, I think I, I misspoke earlier. It was, was like, is a Wisconsin deer different than an Iowa deer? I, I was looking at my states wrong, you know, and I'm like, I don't know, man, that, they, that ain't that far apart, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, if you look at the old, those 38 whitetail subspecies, um, it shows that Minnesota has three different whitetail subspecies. It's just divided, Minnesota divided into, you know, they, the lines come together in the middle of Minnesota and there's three different Minnesota subspecies, which doesn't make any sense. There, there's not three different kinds of, of whitetail in Minnesota and they're, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere and that's kind of the problem with those categories. But I that's mean, that, that'd be something why. like, that'd be like a person living on third street, you know, and going, well, I'm from third street. So right. I'm yeah. very different from the person on second street. <laughs> yeah, a, a friend of mine used to, when we talked a lot about these, um, about variations within a population. So you, you collect one specimen and it's really big and you collect another specimen um, not far away and it's really small. And he used to say, you know, horse racing jockeys and linebackers shop at the same grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> there's, just, there's just variation in people. Yeah. In sizes and shapes. And there's variation in deer um, in sizes and shapes. And even if they're eating the same groceries, there's just natural physical variation. And we have to recognize that. What you're looking for is this population that on the average is way bigger or way different than this whole population. You can't compare this animal with that animal, which is what they did 100 years ago. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Nope, that makes sense. Um <laughs> I might be out of deer questions for now, but I am going to have to ask about the saber-toothed tiger skull that you have there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I've, let I've it go. Always, I've always been just fascinated with um, with those. I'll go the other way with with those critters, and that was a Pleistocene cat, and they were fairly common. There's I forgot how many. There's hundreds i think in the uh labria tar pits in in los angeles i mean it's just a huge collection and then the la county museum la museum of natural history i think it is has a huge collection of, of those saber-toothed skulls that they got out of there that's a resin replica of course but it's a replica of an actual skull that they got out of the labria tar pits and it's like perfect i mean there's no cracks there's no parts that are crushed if you go on the back of the um, of the canines. If you look on the back of the canines, like in here, it, they're almost a little serrated, which I find fascinating for clipping. But then these cats also had jaw hinges that could, I mean, they would have to, they have to open way up. You couldn't have a jaw that only opened here. You wouldn't be able to eat. So they, these jaw hinges opened way up and they used those for, for stabbing and killing and holding the animal down. Um, another interesting thing is they they found that 
saber tooth cats, there's a, a bone that holds your voice box up, your Adam's apple, called a hyoid, hyoid bone. And there's two little bones that come and they, they support that Adam's apple for speech. And then paleontologists will say, and biologists will say, the more robust those bones, the more vocal that, that animal um, is because they needed stronger bones to support all those vocalizations. And, and in sa the saber-toothed cats, they find pretty robust, pretty strong hyoid bones. And so people have surmised that they, they were very vocal cats. And uh, although a friend of mine, uh, Valerius Geis, who did a lot of work with Ice Age animals, would uh, his theory was that that was so that a one animal made a kill, it could vocalize, and then the other animals could um, come and partake in it. But I know Val was really good at coming up with theories. He was great at coming up with theories. Some people call him a theory monger, um, <laughs> and, and whether some of them are valid or not, who knows? But he was always thinking. Um, but the scientific name is Smilodon fatalis which I always thought was a pretty funny scientific name because it's almost like fatal smile. I mean, it almost sounds like fatal smile, smile it on fatalis. And there was other, we, we see this big one all the time because it's just so remarkable, but there were, um, there were other smaller versions of them, little, not the same species, but different species like bobcat sized animals and mountain lion sized animals with really long fangs. And I think in today's cats that are still um, not extinct. The clouded leopard has like two inch fangs. That's probably the closest that we have to kind of these old, the old saber tooth cats. Super interesting. And they had bob tails too, like a bobcat. They didn't have long tails. They had a little short bobcat like tail. Really? That yeah. is. So they find, they found enough bones that they found the tail bones and they know how long the tail was. Do, do you know, is there like any evidence that I mean, maybe in some way, Dan, I don't know. But, um, you, you know, you said those tar pits are in California, which California has a pretty robust, you know, uh, mountain lion population. Is there a connection there? Or is there a connection between those guys and bobcats or not? Nope. 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 Just different cats. Yeah. Okay. If, you know, if you think about an evolutionary tree and some of them just dead end, like the Smilodon, just dead end, went extinct in the Pleistocene and other cats. So there were mountain lions at that time. Other cats um, continued on and, and are, are still alive today, like mountain lions. One thing you hear about the pronghorn got its speed because there was a North American cheetah that was chasing it. And there was a North American cheetah named Morassinonyx. But the North American cheetah has only been around in North America. It was only around about one or two million years. And the pronghorn and that whole pronghorn family has been around for 18 million years. And the whole pronghorn family was built for speed the whole time. And so the North American cheetah isn't why the pronghorn are fast. I'm not sure why the pronghorn are fast, but the cheetah came onto the scene, you know, too late to, to shape the pronghorn speed. Wow. Wow. I tell you what, man, looking at the choppers on, uh, on that saber tooth, it's hard to believe that's the one that left, you know, like you look, yeah. you're like, how could you lose? You would think he would dominate. What, what happened probably was, what happened probably was the, um, all of those big animals that we had in the Pleistocene that this big cat fed on, they disappeared. And so the, the giant animals with tons of meat walking around all the time disappeared. And these big predators that specialized on big animals, big prey animals, then got outcompeted by the smaller like mountain lion, snag and deer. And they're much more agile and can ambush. So we're talking about extinct pronghorn. There's about 18 different types of extinct pronghorn. Um, all, the pronghorn antelope we know today is the only one that's still here. This is one called Heteromerix. You can see the eye orbit right here, just like a pronghorn that has a pronghorn 
um, horn sheets right above the eye orbit. This yeah. was this was one that had six horns on its head, a pronghorn. Wild. And so this is just the horn cores. It had some kind of pronghorn sheath, and oh. none of those were ever preserved as fossils. So all we have is the horn cores, but we don't have the black. What kind of sheath it had? We have no idea. They were just black cones or what it was. But I, I find these extinct pronghorn really fascinating that we had these things running around. And we had little 30-pound pronghorn with different kind of horn cores running around, too. Man, uh, I can only imagine, like like <laughs> what you said, like what was it like three of what we see today on on our current you know on our current model pronghorn or was it something wildly different that's like uh, yeah did they have like a little um the prong in front and did they hook in kind of interesting super interesting awesome well there you have it everybody a deer podcast with a saber tooth twist and a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge and facts from uh, from our good friend uh, Mr. Jim Heffelfinger Jim thank you for joining us uh, totally enlightening tons of great information uh, as always I'm left with even like you know more questions or thoughts and uh, you know pronghorn that I didn't even know about so uh, man I appreciate it. it was a fun fun discussion yep yep well, people can find me on uh, Instagram as Servidnut, C-E-R-V-I-D-N-U-T. Um, I've got, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag of maybe extinct pronghorn uh, posts where there's some cool stuff and um, maybe squirrels with cigarettes. You just never know. It's kind of a mixed bag you might get. Um, I, I posted a really good Bloody Mary that I had in Wisconsin when I was there. Um and so uh, also, as we talked about, DeerNut.com is a, a website I have. I, I, you can buy my book, Deer of the Southwest, if you're interested in cows, whitetail, desert mule deer on that website. But more than that, there's a link that goes to PDFs, and they're all free of a lot of magazine articles that I've written about, you know, if you're interested in, um, if you're in pronghorn, if you're interested in, in fact, there's an article there that has illustrations of all these 18 extinct pronghorn there um, in, in a pronghorn section. So it's all organized by species, pronghorn, javelina, um, quail and small game, and the deer, big section of deer, of course, with a lot of articles that I've written. So those are all, I mean, the only thing I sell on there is my is my book. And so all those articles are free PDFs. You can just download them and, and read them. If you're interested in um, the mule deer subspecies we talked about, this um, ecology management blacktail and mule deer, this is uh, there's a discount code on this right now. If you go to, I don't know if you put links in the show notes, but um, Rutledge, which is R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E.com. That's the publisher, Rutledge.com. And if you go there and then search for, for Mule Deer, bring that book up and use a discount code AIK23, you get 20% off and free shipping. Um, it's not a cheap book, but if you want a book, Take advantage of that before the end of September. I think that discount code is is good through the end of September. And I should say nobody is profiting from this. Not that that's a bad thing to profit from it, but it was written by a bunch of biologists. 100% of the proceeds go to the Mule Deer Working Group that I've chaired for 15 years. And that's a, a working group of Mule Deer biologists who um, get together twice a year. We're sponsored and run by the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So 24 Western Game and Fish Agencies, provinces and states, that come together, those directors and commissioners and biologists have this organization called WAFWA, the Western Association, and we're a working group within that WAFWA. And so we have produced tons of um, information about mule deer conservation, mule deer biology, 
that website is just all one word, MuleDeerWorkingGroup.com. So if you just go to MuleDeerWorkingGroup.com, you'll see about 20 years of mule deer related management and some fact sheets on predation, winter feeding, hybridization, uh, subspecies even on there. So that if you're interested in mule deer, black-tailed deer, that's a really good resource to see what biologists have been doing. 100% of the proceeds of that book go to fund that mule deer working group. Um, my book, Deer of the Southwest, is is the one that's on my website. And that that is though northern Mexico, southwestern United States, cow's whitetail and, and desert mule deer. And then if you're interested in all of that whitetail subspecies stuff we talked about, that's that David Hewitt book, Biology and Management of Whitetail Deer. Um, and the chapter one of both the mule deer book and the whitetail book are um, chapters on subspecies and, and distribution. So if you like that topic, that's that's the place where you find um, all of the science and, and the, the background for what we talked about. Absolutely awesome, Jim. No, I appreciate you running through all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, deer, infinitely fascinating. If you're a deer hunter, you definitely care and love learning about these things. And there is a lot of literature out there that you've uh, helped and been a part of uh, to create where people can learn a heck of a lot more, a heck of a lot more about these things than, than I know. I know. I mean, I, I thought I loved deer, but I think I've more than met my match with, uh, <laughs> with you, Jim. That's a lot of great stuff. <laughs> but uh, no, I appreciate being on. I, you know, I, I always love talking about deer and, and when it comes to subspecies and differences, it seems like there's not a lot of people that are interested in what seems like real pedantic kind of scientific stuff. But I've been since the beginning of my career, I've just been fascinated with um, those kind of differences and subspecies and genetic differences. And so I love talking about that. Awesome. Awesome. I do as well. Well, Jim, thank you so much. Thanks everybody for everybody for listening. If this uh, what your your dear research whistle Check out a bunch of other uh, of Jim's materials there and materials that he and, and his uh, uh, counterparts have worked on. Lots of great stuff out there. Uh, until next time, happy hunting and shooting. And, uh, yeah, I guess let's read about deer. Bye, everybody. There you have it, folks. Thank you very much for listening. As usual, give this video a like if you liked it. Comment something below and give us a subscribe to the Vortex Nation podcast channel. It would mean a lot to us. Also, why don't you give us a follow over on Instagram while you're at it, at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'd love to hear from you over there, and we'll keep you updated with all kinds of cool photos and videos from our adventures that we do here. Otherwise, we will see you on the next one. Thank you again. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. Have a good one.